0: What a blessing it is to be here. Good to see everyone that is here. We do have visitors with us, and we are so appreciative of you. We have some who are here from a long ways off, and we appreciate very much you being with us this morning. And as always, if you have any question whatsoever about anything that you hear talk, anything that you see practiced, uh, we would be more than glad to talk with you about that and see what we can do to give you a Bible answer for any question that you have and uh, see what the Bible has to say. We we want to approach it with an open Bible, first and foremost, and also, of course, with an open heart. We want to know what God says, and we want to do what God says so that we may be pleasing to our Creator. But it is a blessing to be here this morning. Um, As we mentioned in class, Brother Ron Daly, many of you know Brother Daly. He was struck by a car uh, the day before yesterday. He was mowing in a median. and he was struck from behind by an automobile. He is in the hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, he is currently in an induced coma. They have been bringing him out slowly, and he's got some bleeding on the brain, but so far everything looks to be controlled. And the prognosis, the report that I got last night was good concerning Brother Daly, but keep him, please, in your prayers. He has preached here before. He's been all over the all over the country and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he is very much appreciated by many and uh, so keep him in your prayers. Also, um, uh, we have some who are sick this morning, not able to be with us. Keep them in your prayers. Doubt or faith? Please turn with me to the book of Psalm, to the 73rd Psalm. The 73rd Psalm, doubt or faith? Have you ever felt discouraged and have you ever questioned the things that are going on in your life and wondered if serving God is really worth it have you ever had that thought come into your mind that you know serving God is hard and look around and you see all these people who are wicked who are ungodly they're having all the fun and it just didn't fair. Doesn't seem fair, does it? And it's easy to be discouraged when we look at life that way. This particular psalm is credited to Asaph. Who is Asaph? Uh, you, if you've studied the psalms, know that Asaph is mentioned in several of them as the writer of these psalms. He's mentioned also in other places in the in the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles 6 and verse 39 were first introduced to Asaph. He... Served in the Lord's house with the musicians. And we see in chapter 6 and verses 39 through 43 that he was a Levite, the son of Berechiah. He was a descendant of Gershon, the son of Levi. We know that David made Asaph the chief Levite to minister before the Ark of the Lord in the Old Covenant uh, in regard to the tabernacle. And he even served under Solomon. He is called in Second Chronicles 29 and verse 30 a seer, that is a prophet. So Asaph was an inspired man, according to the Bible. He wrote the 73rd Psalm. This Psalm, along with 11 others, uh, Psalm 50, God the Righteous Judge, was also written by Asaph. And also Psalms 73 through 83 were all written by this man, or they're all attributed to him. In this Psalm, we see Asaph, his faith is being challenged by the things that he is experiencing in his life. He sees the apparent success and the happiness with which the wicked live their lives. And it bothers him. He allows that to trouble him deeply. As we were talking about in our Bible class this morning, perception is very important. Our attitude is very important, how we see things. And we pointed out this morning that there are basically, fundamentally, two worldviews. You have the worldview through which you see everything through a lens that is defined and affected at least by God. And then you have the other worldview which leaves God completely out of the picture. And depending upon which worldview you hold to, That will definitely change your life. It will alter your life. It will determine how you live your life. Well, Asaph is looking at his perceived problem, and it's really bothering him. What helped Asaph change his perspective? By the way, here's the end of the story Asaph's faith remained strong, and he recommitted himself to the Lord. In a way that, um, you know, in his mind, at least at that point, he was determined whatever it took, he was going to be faithful and serve the Lord because it was worth it, because of the end result. But what helped Asaph change his perspective? And how did this change in perspective strengthen his faith and his commitment to the Lord? Well, we're going to find out in this study. Let's begin in verse 1 and let's read down together through verse 11. And then we'll back up and we will point some things out from this text. This text is dealing with Asaph's problem as he saw it. Now it's interesting in the first verse we see what Asaph's primary perception is. That he believes in God. And he believes and he knows that God does good to Israel and those who are pure heart. Truly God is good to Israel. To such as are pure in heart. Verse 2 begins with this contrastive coupling, but. Sometimes that's not good. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. <coughs> their eyes bulge with abundance. they have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth, therefore His people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, "How does God know?" And their knowledge in, and is their knowledge in the most high?" So Asaph is seeing this contradiction in his mind of how things really ought to be. He knows that God is truly good to Israel and is truly good to those who are of pure heart. He knows that. You know, Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. The Beatitudes we refer to them as. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the... Blessed are those who are righteous, who seek righteousness. Blessed are all these characteristics of men who are serving the Lord. They are the ones who are blessed, right? But yet, he almost lost his faith. His feet were about to slip. See, he was standing on this solid rock of faith in God because he knew God was good to Israel, but he was about to fall because of the things that he saw. He believed that God was good, but that was not lining up with what he was experiencing. That is not what he saw. He saw wicked apparently triumphing over good. He saw the perplexity that all Men see, if they look at the world and see its wickedness, in fact, you have the unbelievers say this, well, if God is so good, why does He allow all these bad things to happen? If God is so righteous, why does He allow wickedness to continue? If God is so good, why does He allow bad things to happen to godly people? We hear that all the time. That can can cause us some pause to think. Is that true? Well, of course it's not true. But that's often thrown up today by those who do not believe in God. There is an explanation. We'll get to that in a moment. He says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw. He saw how good they had it. The prosperity of the wicked. They were wealthy. When he saw that there were no pains in their death, Their strength remained firm. Uh, They weren't scared. Not any more than a godly man would be afraid, in a sense, that death is something no man wants to experience. But they remained firm in their rebellion against God, even in their death. They did not experience trouble like other men. They were not plagued by the troubles that Many who were righteous were plagued with. They were proud. They lifted up their voice against heaven. And their tongues went throughout the earth, blaspheming God. Their eyes eyes bulged with abundance. In other words, they never had enough. And they always got all that they wanted. And they scoff and they speak wickedly. They are proud, arrogant, boastful people. And they speak out against God himself and setting their mouths against the heavens why did God allow this to go on why did God allow these men to to continue to be wicked and hurt the people of God in verse 10 he even asked himself this question notice therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say how does God know and is there knowledge in the most high He's Asaph is kind of wondering himself. You know, these are the ones who are popular. You know, it's amazing to me how people who carry a false message can gather the greatest audience. You know? You can come up with the craziest thing that your mind can come up. You can dream up the most ridiculous stuff and there'll be people who believe that. They'll think you're so smart. And so the wicked men were popular. And the people drank the waters of their sinful pleasure, the things that they offered. You know, you can live however you want. There, Don't have to worry about punishment. Don't have to worry about God's judgment. God loves you. We hear that all the time today. God loves you. God's graceful and he's loving, he's kind. He's not going to judge you. He's going to save you anyway. My friend, that's not the God of the Bible. But these wicked men, they were popular. And they misled men. And in doing so, of course, they dismissed the omniscience of God. God doesn't know. God doesn't see. God's not punishing. We're getting away with it. He's not going to judge us. This was bothering asaph and he almost lost his faith over this question asaph wondered what the benefit was in being faithful i mean from all appearances there were no downsides to being wicked and there was no upside to being righteous that's what he was seeing in the everyday world that's what his eyes were observing His perspective was that being a wicked person pays. In verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have uh, uh, put these things, these sinful things, away from me in vain. Because I'm trying to live a Godly life so I will be blessed by God, but I don't feel very blessed. These men are being wicked in their lives and they appear to be blessed. This is not fair. I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. I was sincere in my coming to God. I'm sincere in my doing what's right, but I don't feel very blessed. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He was suffering. The righteous do suffer. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. For all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those who live godly and who truly have a spiritual priority in life. They're going to forfeit many worldly things. Many worldly pleasures. They're going to seek to serve God, and so there will be without many things that the worldly person would have. That's just the way it is, and they will suffer, because people will mock them, ridicule them, laugh at them. That's what it means to be a child of God, by the way, to be the scourge of the world. Jesus said himself, the world hates me, certainly they're going to hate you. And Asaph's dilemma is, okay, well, why? This just doesn't seem fair. But he also knew if he professed his thoughts publicly that it would cause others to stumble. Look at verse verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. No, listen, it's not wrong. In and of itself, to examine yourself, examine what you believe, and even have thoughts of, you know, questions of the way things are. Uh, Nothing wrong with examining certain problems that you have in your mind that come up from time to time. One of the things that I have always tried to do as a preacher is to never preach my opinion, never to preach my feelings. I've always set my mind to only preach the things that I am convinced of, the things that I am convicted of. I only preach what I believe with all my heart to be the truth of God's Word. But when I begin to have questions or doubts about something, I need to keep my mouth shut. Today, we've got a bunch of folks in the church because they get these doubts, they begin to express these doubts, and they throw them out there, and other people, well, I've got the same doubts. And they begin to pull themselves together. And you know, there is so much apostasy these days, people leaving the church, people leaving. You know, I, there was a fellow on Facebook the other day who talked about how he had left the church and because this church mistreated him. Okay, so that's why you left the Lord's church, because a church that you were a part of mistreated you. I'm glad Paul didn't leave the Lord's church because brethren mistreated him. Paul was mistreated a lot by brethren, wasn't he? Why do we, when we have doubts and we have questions, why do we want to air them and cause others to also fall in with us and begin to question, even to question God, to question the truth of God's Word, to question the way things are as far as God has defined them. See, Asaph, he had his questions. But give him some props here. He kept his mouth shut about those questions until he did something about it. The dilemma that he saw was beyond his ability to reconcile with what he was experiencing in life. And with what he knew about God. He knew the truth. But yet he was seeing this activity that appeared to contradict that truth. Verse 17, though, is the turning point. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Oh, Now, what happens here? Asaph goes to the house of God. You know, what so many people do is when they begin to have doubt, they turn away from God and they seek answers everywhere else. Instead of going back to God's Word, trying to reconcile these things with what God says... And learn from God. Instead of doing that they run away from God. And they begin to become critical of God. And critical of his word. But that's not what Asaph did. He goes into the sanctuary of God. And he listens to what God says. In order to overcome doubt. Created by the illusions that we see in this world. We must come to God. To find out what the truth is really is, because God is truth, God's word is the truth, and we need to trust God, not what we see. We need, let me say that again, we need to trust God and not what we see in this world. Because the reality is, all the things that we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, all of these things are temporary. They are illusions, if you will. God's word is true, and God is true. And so, if our perspective is formed by the things that we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, we're going to be in the dark about a lot of things. We need to have our minds educated from the one who created all these things. The one who created us. Who made us in his own image. We need his input into things. The one who knows more than I do, the one who knows more than every man combined, historically and future, whoever, God knows a lot more. And when we learn from him, now we have learned from the master, the creator, the designer of the universe. Asaph says, I understood their end. Now this is what he learned when he went to the house of God. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. God, did you know that he uses people's pride against them? He uses people's wickedness against them. He will make them think that, hey, everything's great. He will send them, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verses 10-12, through 12, he will send them strong delusions so that they may believe the lie, that they all may be condemned, who did not receive a love for the truth, that they might be saved. Those who reject God, God allows to believe confidently that they're okay. But God will set them on slippery places. Their path is destruction. Verse 19, oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. The day is coming that they're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to meet God. They're going to be judged for their wickedness. God is going to hold them accountable for their evil. God is going to punish them. And it will be a terrifying experience. As the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 10, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 20, as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. They're living out the dream. But the reality is the day is going to come when they're going to be awakened to reality. They are condemned by the Almighty. That day is coming. Asaph learned the whole truth in the house of the Lord. You see, outside of the house of God, you just see a certain amount of truth. Tainted truth. You see... You you see, in fact, an illusion of truth in many cases. But when you are educated with the things of God, now you're able to see things fully, truly. Isn't it amazing how God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's understanding that he has provided for us in his word, how that changes your entire perspective on life. It changes your life itself. He had come to the house of God and he had learned. He learns that God will judge the wicked. They will have their end. He learns that God allows the wicked to confidently pursue their evil ways, building up or storing up for themselves wrath from God. Romans 1, 18 through 32. God gave them over. To fulfill their lust and their desire. God gave them over to a debased mind. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, they are storing up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath and the mighty judgment of God. They're going to get what's coming to them. Asaph learns the truth about what will ultimately happen to the wicked and all the things that they pursue in life. He learns the lesson that Jesus himself taught. For example, in Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. The rich fool, had his crops had come in now, and he, is, he has had a bumper crop. And he is thinking, oh, how blessed I am. Look at all the things I have done and accomplished in my life. Look at what I have. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go build me some bigger barn so I can have, a room, have room to store my crops. But Jesus talks about him as forgetting. God. And as the parable goes, that night he dies. And the question is then whose will all these things be? What happened to that man's crops? He didn't get the taste of it, did he? He couldn't take them with him. He lost it all. The rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16, that rich man who fared sumptuously every day, lived in a palace, the Poor Lazarus sitting outside the gate just begging for crumbs that fell off of his table. Dogs licking his sores. They both die. Lazarus is taken by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The, the rich man lifts up his eyes in torment. Doesn't even have a drop of water to cool his tongue. Send Lazarus, he says. and drop a, Put a drop of water on my tongue. What happened to his house and all of the things that he had? It's all gone. Asaph had come to see this lesson. The day will come. God will awake and justice will be served upon the wicked. They will get what they deserve. Condemnation from God. Now, as he understands therein, listen, this is, this is a principle that we need to understand as well because we can be deceived. You know, Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 7, do not be deceived. In other words, there is a, a real risk of being deceived by this very thing that Asaph is describing in the 73rd Psalm. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. You see, by all appearances, we can sow our wickedness and we're going to reap joy from that. I mean, we're having a great time. We're living it up. But don't be deceived by what appears to be a good way to live. Because the day will come. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That day is coming when he's going to lose it all. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, the man who sows to the Spirit, he's living a different kind of life than that fellow who sows to the flesh, isn't he? And the fellow who sows to the Spirit, he's going to be doing it without a lot of things that the worldly person has and does. And he's going to suffer the hardships of being a child of God. That's the way it is, but he's going to reap life everlasting. There's the end, you see. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind, verse 21 says. Well, why, why are you grieving here, Asaph? What's the problem? Well, it's not like it was at first. He was grieved because and envious because of the wicked prospering. That troubled him. But now he has come to see the truth, and now his trouble has turned to grief and vexation in spirit. Why? Because suddenly he shifts from self pity and discontentment to humility, to godly sorrow. He recognizes how foolish his thinking was. He comes to learn how dumb his way of looking at things was. And he's sorry about it. He confesses his ignorance. He admits that he had allowed himself to sink to the level of a beast. In other words, he wasn't appreciative of the blessings that God had given to him. He was not, certainly not appreciative of the blessings that God had promised him for faithfulness. And he was just looking at things from a purely natural perspective. So he had sunk to the level of a beast who had no understanding or knowledge of God. Oh, Asaph has awakened himself to the real truth. He says in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You see, Asaph never really let go of God. Asaph never turned his back on God. Asaph was still holding on to God. In fact, that's what led him to the sanctuary to find out the truth about all of this that was troubling him. I am continually with you. You hold me by the right hand. God has lifted him up. Asaph then proves himself to be a man of purity, a man man of integrity and honesty. He never turned away from God's guidance, but rather he turned to it for his understanding. And there he found the truth. And again, just like so many today, when their feelings get hurt or they become upset about something that somebody does in the church, what do they do? Instead of running to God, instead of bowing before God and seeking God to give them the right perspective and to, and to instruct them and lead them and keep them from thinking evil about their brethren and keep them from turning away from what is right and true, they just go off in a huff and they begin to criticize and it turns, at, turns into actually an abandonment of God and his way. How sad. But it happens over and over again. The end of the faithful is far different from the end of the wicked. Notice Asaph says in verse 24, And afterward receive me to glory. Afterwards. After what? After I've continued my life, and I've been faithful to you, and I've struggled, and I continue to be disciplined every morning i'm troubled on every side in this life but that's okay now because i know the end my end i'll be rewarded i'll be glorified and i know what's coming to them and i don't want to be in their shoes i i don't want to be in their shoes either asaph has seen the light in verse 25 whom have i in heaven but you And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. Now, Asaph's commitment and his devotion is rekindled by this knowledge of what's going to happen to the wicked and what's going to happen to him if if he remains faithful. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. So, his desire, his heart's desire is to please God, to trust God to obey God. That's his heart's desire. God was all he needed. You know, if God is all I need, I, I don't need things to make me happy. If God is all I need, I don't even need people to make me contented. If God is all I need, I, I'm like Paul with in Philippians 3, verses 7-11. through 11. I have counted it all dung that I may gain Christ. If God is all I need, I'm willing to give up anything and everything necessary for me to have Christ and to obtain the resurrection of the dead, Philippians chapter 3. I, I, I'll be willing to give it all up if God is all I need. If God is all I desire, in Colossians 3 and verse 1, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. If God is all I desire, my affections are truly heavenward, then I'm not going to care about material things as far as being so overly concerned about them, anxious and worrisome about them. I'm going to be, and I will learn to be, contented with the things that I have and use those things for the glory of God. If God is all I seek, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will give you, provide for you what you need in life. But if God is all you seek, then you, won't, you will not be concerned about where you're going to lay your head, what you're going to eat, or what you're going to wear. If God is all you need, desire, and seek, you'll have all you need. You'll have everything that will ever truly matter. Think about that. You will have everything that will ever truly matter. Picture yourself at the end before God Almighty. And you have lived your life, or at least the majority of your life. You have turned to the Lord. You've trusted in Him. You've obeyed Him. You have received forgiveness for your sins, purified through the blood of Christ. By being baptized into Christ, you've been raised to walk in newness of life, a life with God. And now you come to the end of your road. And now all that you have sought, God and Jesus and the life that is in them, you find it, you have it, and you will have it for eternity. Forever and ever. What if you don't seek God in your life? What if you do not desire God in your life? What if you think you don't need God in your life? And so you spend your time seeking the material things around you. That's what your desire truly is. That's what you feel like you need to be satisfied in life. Well, the day is going to come. You're going to stand before God. And you know what's going to happen to everything you acquire? Everything that you obtain in your life, whether it be material wealth, possessions, or prominence and power, or popularity, fame, whatever it may be, guess where it's all going to go? <laughs> Away. That's where it's going. You'll lose it all, and you'll lose your soul. Asaph said, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28 It is good for me to draw near. You know, in between that, in verse 27, what what about the end of those who are far from God? They'll perish. They'll be destroyed. Those who desert you for harlotry, that is, those who have made other things their God. Those who have committed spiritual adultery, and that they want to hold on to the world with one hand. Oh, they may glorify God with their mouth, but yet in their heart, they're holding on to the world. James 4 and verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? For whosoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Asaph had come to know this and understand it. And so he has committed himself now to continue to hold tightly to God and to declare all of his works. And just kind of recapping this this psalm, it begins with his perception that God is good. That He is good to Israel and He is good to the pure of heart. But then he begins to look around and he sees the wealthy, the wicked who are wealthy. He sees how they are doing fine without God, so it appears. And he becomes envious of that. They are successful and prosperous and yet they go unpunished because of their wickedness. They are continuing to to succeed. So truly I am righteous in vain. And this troubled Asaph, where did he go? He didn't go to, to voice his complaints against God and against the people of God. Instead, he goes to the house of God. And when he went to the sanctuary of God, he understood their end. He came to see the reality, the true reality. Of what will happen to the wicked and what will happen to the righteous? In the end, the wicked will be destroyed and they will lose it all. And I was ignorant. I was foolish of this. I, I was foolish to question God. So you can kind of see how this this goes. Verses four through twelve, the wicked are successful and prosperous. In verse eighteen and following, to the their end is going to be destruction and they're going to lose it all. He was envious of how ignorant and foolish he was to, to be envious of them. And his conclusion is truly God is good. It is truly good to seek God in life. It is truly good to cleanse your heart and to pursue God with all you have. I'm going to trust him with all I have. He is all I need. That's the reality that Asaph came to see. Now, I, I in closing, as we close this down, I, I want to suggest to you, This is not the only chapter in the Bible that presents this series of events. Or or the story is, is not only presented in the 73rd Psalm, it's presented from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Same story over and over again, with different names and faces, different circumstances, but it's the same story over and over and over and over again. You know, you go to the book of Genesis in the third chapter, and what do you see? You see sin entering into the world. Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. All appears to be lost. From a worldly perspective, man is done. But then God intercedes. God, in fact, promises in verse 19 of chapter 3 that through the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman, there will come one who will crush Satan's head. There is hope. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Even though all appears to be lost, There's light. You get to Genesis chapter 6 and you have the world being done for. God looks down and he he sees that every thought of man is evil continually. But then you have Noah, the light at the end of the tunnel. There is this one man who finds grace in the eyes of God because he's righteous. And God saves him. You think about Noah and his perspective. He looked around all the wickedness everywhere. He's the only one serving God. How hard that must be. From all appearances, he was alone. But he retained his faith in God, trusted him, and was saved because of it. God's promises to Abraham. By all appearances, these promises would fail. God promised in Genesis chapter 12 that through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. You get to chapter 15, 15 and 16, and all he has is the heir in his house. He doesn't have a son. So then, Sarah and Abraham concocted this idea, Sarah would give Hagar to Abraham, and so they tried to bring this about themselves, and boy, what a mess that made. We still see the effect of that today. But Abraham was corrected about that, and yes, it would not be through Ishmael, but through the son that would be born by Sarah. Abraham trusted God. He trusted God so much that he circumcised himself, himself in Genesis 17 and his entire household in view of a promise that would be naturally impossible. And then in chapter 22, Abraham is told to carry his son, Isaac, the, the son of promise, and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham in chapter 22 gets up early in the morning, grabs Isaac, his son, his servant, and they go off for the three day journey to Mount Moriah. Jerusalem, where he's going to offer his son. He takes his son up on the, on the mountain. He's fixing to offer him, raises the knife in his hand, and the Lord stops him. That's faith. But from all natural appearances, the promises to Abraham were done. We see also in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's dreams, he tells his brethren, he tells his parents about his dreams, about all of his family bowing down to him. These were just dreams, and all these dreams appear to be shattered because he sold into slavery into Egypt. And then he rises in prominence in Potiphar's household. He rises in prominence. Potiphar gives everything over to his his servant Joseph. But then Joseph is falsely accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife. And then Joseph is thrown in jail. Dreams shattered again. Joseph spends years in prison, and finally he is lifted out. And he interprets a dream for Pharaoh, and he is made second in all of Egypt. And sure enough, the promise is fulfilled. But it didn't appear that way. And we see that over and over. Israel would not be delivered. You know, Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage. They are heading out of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, and they're trapped between Pharaoh and his mighty army and the Red Sea. And what did the people say? Why did you deliver us? Just to bring us out here into the wilderness to be killed. They didn't have enough graves in Egypt. By all appearances, Israel was toast. But God saved them that day. He parted the waters and protected them and saved them. The promised land would not be gained, Numbers 13 and 14. They, entered, they get to the edge and the people fail to believe God enough to take it but eventually they obtained it by faith. And then Elijah, he thought, and you could go on and on and on. You think as Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, it appeared by all appearances, Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel and all the prophets should realize Israel's done for. They're gone. They're in Babylonian captivity. They're toast. They're done. But no, the valley of dry bones, these people will be raised again. Over and over and over again, Jesus appeared to be defeated, didn't he? On the cross, his enemies had gained the victory. That wasn't the end of the story. He was raised on the third day, as how read, before the Lord's Supper. In Second Corinthians four verses seven through eighteen, Paul talks about how the apostles they were given over to death all the day long. They were martyred. All of them died a martyr's death that we know of except for John. But yet, their teaching goes on. Their work continues on to this very day. By all appearances, the church will be destroyed in Revelation. And John's whole message of Revelation is, no. The church is not destroyed. It will not be destroyed but it will be victorious, it will rise out of the ashes of Roman persecution and fulfill God's purpose. From all appearances, when we look at things from a wrong perspective, it's easy to come to wrong conclusions. Let us say with Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. First and foremost, in order to overcome the the perception, the illusions of the world, we must have the knowledge of God. We must come to God to learn the truth and see things from His perspective. That changes everything. And then let us hold to that truth. Regardless of what any man says, what some skeptic says, let us hold tenaciously to God's truth, to His way. Let us follow His pattern. Regardless of what the denominations do, let us hold to that pattern. Regardless of what our apostate brethren do, let us hold tightly to that pattern. Whatever we do, hold to God's will. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We repent of our sins, we're baptized into Christ. Let us hold in fastly to the Lord. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then the Hebrew writer talks about considering one another to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be faithful to God because that day is coming. Will we choose faith? Or will we choose faith? doubt. It is a choice. We choose. Who are we going to believe in? Who are we going to trust? Is it God? Are you willing to lose your soul over something that you are absolutely certain to lose? Are you willing to lose your soul over something that you are absolutely certain to lose? There's nothing in this life that you can keep. The only thing, my friend, that you can carry with you from this world is your soul and is your love for God, is your faith. That's it. And if you're faithful, you'll be rewarded forever. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Why keep Jesus waiting? And if we can help you in any way this morning, won't you come while we stand? while we